Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My name is Abhishek. My guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a psychiatrist and the chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University School of Medicine. Over many years, she has treated patients with addictions of all kinds, including behavioral ones. Her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, is unputdownable. It brings to life real stories of her patients and how they struggled through addiction before breaking it. Thank you so much, Dr. Lemke, for doing this. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And I owe you one a little bit. I tried something that you recommend in your book, which has helped me deal with a bad habit which borders on addiction, and that's uh, that's ice creams. The thing is, I would have it every two or three days, and I, I didn't know until a friend of mine told joked with me that if your son, also, who's, he's, who's four years old now, develops a taste of ice cream as much as you do, then you'll have to dedicate some portion of your salary to deal with it. But, but then I wasn't. <laughs> and yet... Uh, I wasn't uh, aware of it while I was going through it. Uh, and uh, I think you, you you talk about how you have to abstain from uh, it for 30 days. So I tried to put myself through that test and it was ludicrous in that I had to delete some apps and also physically look away from the ice cream store when I'm passing through it. I don't know how silly that is, but then it helped me. It's not that I've quit ice cream altogether, but uh, that has indeed helped. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think it really humanizes an experience that so many of us, if not all of us have in this day and age, where we start a behavior that seems innocent enough. Certainly it's normalized by our culture. Other people are doing it, no big deal. And then we develop a kind of habit around it. And then slowly over time, we actually develop a kind of a compulsive orientation without being able to see it happening as it occurs. And as you know, and as I wrote, write about in my book, that happened to me with romance novels. I read a book called The Twilight Saga, which was uh, about teenage vampires. And for whatever reason, it just sucked me in. I read it four times. Then I you know, read other vampire romance novels. And I was sort of off and running. And over the course of two years, by the end of that, without seeing the progression, I was compulsively and in an addictive way uh, consuming romance novels all the time, um, even, you know, at work between patients. So I think it's really important for us to realize the ways in which so many of the substances and behaviors that we engage in in the modern world have become drugified, made more potent, more accessible, more bountiful, more novel, such that once we begin using them, it's very easy to get into this vortex of addiction. And the pleasure that a romance novel might bring you or an ice cream in my case. What I also learned from your book is that even pain, which is sits at the other end of the spectrum and pleasure are like two, are like Siamese twins, let's say, tied at the hip <laughs> yes. in, in the brain. How does that work? That the, the same brain circuits is what I read in your book that give yeah. you pain, also give you pleasure, which is uh, quite phenomenal. Yeah. So this is a really exciting finding in neuroscience in the past 50 to 75 years that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So by very many different measurements, whether it's animal studies or brain imaging or electrophysiologic studies, what we see is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure process pain 
and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine there's like a seesaw or a teeter-totter, a beam on a central fulcrum, that is a metaphor for how we process pleasure and pain. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. And understanding how this balance works is really key to understanding what happens in our brains as we become addicted, which is to say that there are certain rules governing this balance. And the first and most important rule is the balance wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And it's an overwhelming urge for the, for the brain to restore homeostasis after right. any deviation from neutrality. And the way that our brains do that is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus is. So I read a romance novel that releases dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in the reward pathway of the brain. My balance tilts to the side of pleasure, but no sooner has that happened and my brain adapts to that increased dopamine transmission by down-regulating dopamine firing, not just to baseline, but below baseline. That is called neuroadaptation. Mm -hmm. I like to imagine that as these gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance so they don't get off as soon as it's level. They stay on until the balance is tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's that come down, the after effect, the hangover, or that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate, which by the way, can occur even while I'm still eating the first piece, right? Mm. Just like we can have an urge to want to watch another TikTok video, even before we finish the first TikTok video. And that's that balance tilted to the side of pain. Now, if we wait long enough, maybe it's seconds, maybe it's minutes, maybe it's hours, but eventually if we don't consume more, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored. But while the gremlins are there with easy access to our drug of choice, the urge to consume more is very, very strong. Mm. And if we do consume more over days to weeks to months to years, we accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance until there's enough to fill this whole room. And now we're entering into addicted brain. What that means is we're in a chronic dopamine deficit state That initial response to pleasurable stimuli, that deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response gets stronger and longer. And in effect, our pleasure pain balance gets stuck on the side of pain. That's what happens in addiction. Then people need to use just to feel normal. When they're not using, they're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. That doesn't sound good. No. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, if we don't wait long enough, or rather if we don't stave off that the next TikTok video, then our, what I understand from you is that we need that much amount each time just to stay normal. So in other words, if the dopamine or that pleasure chemical, whatever gets released up there, which would happen by just one scoop of ice cream or whatever, that you need more of that. So the, the whole idea that they taught us in, in economics is the more you have of a thing, the less you want to have more of it doesn't work anymore then. that That's exactly right. Now, some of this is based on quantity and frequency. Quantity and frequency matter, right? So if you have ice cream or I read a romance novel, right? And those gremlins hop on the pain side of the balance. And by the way, once the gremlins are created, they don't, they never entirely go away. They might hop off the pain side of the balance, but they're waiting in the wings. So that with any re-exposure to ice cream in your case or romance novels in my case, they're already created and they're going to hop on and slam us down Mm. to the side of pain and to that state of craving. On the other hand, if we can space out 
our consumption enough, leaving right. days in between and consume in moderation so that we leave enough time for the gremlins to get off of the balance and for homeostasis to re be restored, then we won't get into that chronic dopamine deficit state. So it's not to say that we should never experience intoxicants because essentially food today is an intoxicant, right? It's more fat, more sugar, uh, more salt, more flavorants. It's all much tastier than it ever was. It releases dopamine in our reward pathway. So we can ingest those types of very rich foods as long as we do it in small amounts and we do it intermittently. So we leave enough time for homeostasis to be restored. And then what I found another bit interesting in your book is that you talk about dopamine. So just help us explain a little bit more of it. Like for example, if, let's say when a gambler is about to place his bet, there is a spike, he feels happy, or you know that, that uncertainty of uh, winning or losing, or it could right. be an alcoholic walking by a bar and then he's wondering, should I go in? So what happens in the head when uh, you're titillated by some of your cravings? What happens exactly? Yeah. So this is a great point, which is to say, we know that the drug releases dopamine in the reward pathway, but it turns out that reminders of the drug can also release a little bit of dopamine mm -hmm. in the reward pathway. So we get a little bit high just being reminded of our drug, or even just what's often called euphoric recall, thinking about using gets us a little bit high. But the key piece here that rodent experiments have shown is that after that little trigger that reminds us of the drug, it's followed by a little mini dopamine deficit state. So that same cycle with the gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance <clears throat> happens even with just reminders of the drug, not even the drug mm -hmm. itself. That creates then that cycle of mini intoxication and mini craving. And once we're in craving, then we're very, very motivated to do the work to get the reward. If you just think about when your phone is in your pocket and you hear a bing or you feel hear a vibration, you know you got a text, that creates a little bit of dopamine followed by a little bit of dopamine deficit, a craving. And now you can't even focus on anything else you're doing. All you're thinking is, I'm going to check my phone. I'm going to check my phone. I'm going to check my phone. That's what happens in the brain in this cycle. And can some of it uh, be harmless as well? It takes me back to school. Let me give you an example. Every yeah. day, at around 4.45 p.m. to 5 p.m., I would have a physical reaction to leave the books aside, go down and play, pick up the bat because yeah. it was a release. Now, perhaps there is a dopamine rush during that time, but that may not be bad because it's a physical sport. So it need not be bad at all times. Then would, that, would my understanding be right? That's exactly right. Dopamine is not our enemy, right? Mm -hmm. We need dopamine for survival. Without dopamine, we... we we wouldn't have the desire to do anything. There's a super famous experiment in which rats were engineered to not have any dopamine receptors in the reward pathway. And what the researchers found was that if they put food in the rat's mouth, it would eat the food and seem to get pleasure from the food. But if they put it even a body length away, the rat would starve to death. Wow. In other words, we need dopamine for motivation to do the work to live our lives, right? And so it's okay to get excited about things and want to do things and to look forward to them. The problem is that we have now drugified our world to the point where these substances and behaviors release way more dopamine than our ancient brains were evolved for, right? We were evolved for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger in which we would have to walk tens of kilometers every day just to find a little bit of water and a little bit of food and, you know, another tribe. And that's what we're evolved for. That's why this mechanism is built the way that it is. 
It's terribly mismatched for our modern ecosystem in which we have these cheap pleasures everywhere we turn. So isn't that ironic that as things are becoming easier, we are you know, pretty much going to the dogs in that yeah. uh, we get distributed. There's no concept of boredom. I've seen people, yeah. and I've been guilty of that. You're calling the elevator or the lift, as we call it here, from the sixth floor to the ground floor, you pick up your phone. In the sure. lavatory, people, men, they're checking their phones while taking a leak. Uh, yes. At a yes. conference recently, I found a guy who was drinking tea in a saucer or a cup. <laughs> and and, and, and he, had, he had his phone. On the other hand, he was checking his office email. Uh, yeah. you, you, you take your phone to your bed. So what is that? Right. Is it that we don't want to be distracted? Is it too much leisure? Are we getting too lazy? I mean, if you ask my grandfather, he had a different life altogether. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, are we getting softer over the years? Is, are things too easy? And that's causing us all this harm then? Well, I don't like to phrase it as things are too easy. What it is, is the, what I call the plenty paradox. You're absolutely right. We have reached this tipping point where we have not only all of our basic survival needs met, but we have all of these pleasures, right? Right at our fingertips. We're insulated from painful experiences, especially physically painful experiences. And the result is that we're all caught in this dopamine vortex where now we're so used to being stimulated that when we're not being stimulated, we experience withdrawal and withdrawal is painful. So it's not, it's not, the frame is not like we're soft and weak and morally compromised compared to our grandparents. It's that we're living in an environment that is really conspiring against us without our realizing it. And so, you know, we're caught again, caught in this dopamine cycle of intoxication, dopamine freefall, which is painful, which drives craving, which then motivates us to do the work to get more drug. And then what ends up happening is not only are people on their phones doing all the terms, but now they're watching a Netflix movie and on their phones, right? Because the movie itself isn't enough and the phones itself, or they're watching, they're on the phones and they're smoking cigarettes or, you know, now we need to combine two drugs together to overcome tolerance. And this go, and, and, and what you realize is that there, there's no end. Like eventually we will all hit the wall where we're just miserable and we're miserable because we're constantly chasing pleasures. And these pleasures are driving our dopamine levels downward. So it's really physiological. It's really this mismatch between our brains and the world that we humans have created. And and sometimes it's okay just to be, right? Without having, without distractions. I think I, I like your line from the book and I quote that boredom is also an opportunity for discovery and invention, unquote. Yeah. It's all right. And maybe you can let your thoughts wander. What happens in that time in the head when you try and keep that smartphone away. And here, when we talk about smartphone, it's not drug or alcohol, but behavioral addiction. So what exactly happens there when we are bored? Well, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that when we first give up that constant stimulation, whatever it's from, hmm. we, we do go into withdrawal and it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And boredom, it can be scary because boredom also prompts us to think about deep questions like, why am I here? Why do I live? Why do I die? All, you know, and that that's super scary for people. But if we can just allow ourselves to sit with the quiet and just kind of contemplate, eventually our brains calm down. They really do. And we get into our default mental resting network where we have, you know, cross brain synchrony, which is so important for things like creativity, 
um, well-being, um, a feeling of groundedness, serenity, all of these things. You know, what happens today is that we're constantly reacting to these external stimuli. And even when we don't have external stimuli, we're interrupting our own thoughts, um, telling ourselves to check, you know, for more external stimuli. Hmm. So when we first give that up, it is an intense and sensation of withdrawal and discomfort. But if we can just stick with those uncomfortable feelings, they eventually subside right. and we can really find the ground of our being. I had a patient who was from South Korea, a young woman who came to me for anxiety and depression and irritability. And I discovered as I was getting to know her that she was constantly plugged in from the moment she woke up in the morning to the moment she went to bed, she was listening to music or watching something when she walked to class, everything. And so I said, well, my, my homework for you is that you unplug for certain periods of the day. For example, why don't you try walking to class without listening to music? So she did that and she came back a month later and she said, well, well, you know, at first it was really hard because it was really boring. Like I was walking, I was like, this is really boring. This is really boring. But she said after a while, she started to notice the trees, mm. which I just thought was such a great, you know, like, that's right. Yeah. We, we, we go from being yeah. internally fixated with our own sensations and, and emotional experience to being able to be grounded enough to pay attention to the world. And that's yeah. where we really come alive. You know, when we're, we're living in an experience where we can, interact with our environment. I right. think that's what we're losing almost more than people are not present. They're not tuning out and paying right. attention to the people and things around them. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're mm. lesser for it. Right. In fact, uh, there was an ad advertisement in India. I don't recall by whom, uh, where the tagline was look up because the, the yes. ad showed everyone is just right. looking into their smartphones right. and the, the, the right. trees and the, and the, right. and the birds and the like. So what is uh, addiction according to you? Although, you know, it, it goes back to uh, the Roman era where being addicted, as I read, uh, it was equated with slavery in that if you, uh, mm. you know, it, as, as a feeling of enslaved. So if you owed anyone right. some money, you were sentenced to slavery. But today it's, it's more of a bond addiction that is hard to break. But how do you define it and how do you put it? Well, I think slavery is an interesting metaphor. When we are addicted, we really are enslaved to the substance or behavior. We may have the illusion that we're choosing, but really our drug is mm. choosing us. We lose autonomy. We lose the ability to be free of that substance or behavior. Formally defined addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Sometimes we we, we sort of truncate the de definition to say, look for the three C's, control, compulsion, and consequences. Mm. Control means I repeatedly try to cut back and I'm not able to. I repeatedly try to say I'm going to stick to certain amounts and I don't stick to those amounts. Compulsion is a whole lot of my mental real estate occupied with using the drug, you know, getting, obtaining the drug, covering up my use and narrowing of my mental focus. Mm. And also this kind of level of automaticity again, where I can even go into a somewhat dissociative state and initiate use and not even realize that we hear that all the time. And number three consequences. And those consequences can be physical health consequences, relationship consequences, school, job, uh, you name right. it, you know, uh, um, spiritual consequences where I'm engaging in activities contrary to my goals and values because I've prioritized consumption of this drug or behavior. So that's how we define addiction. Another way that people sometimes think about addiction is false worship, 
where we kind of replace a relationship with a divine being uh, with this substance or behavior and we come to really worship it, but it's, it's not the thing that we really need. Right. It's kind of a false substitute. Can the mind be trained to know when you are falling in that trap? Because often it's, it's in hindsight when somebody points that out, or maybe you're sitting uh, and, and looking at uh, YouTube shorts or TikTok, then you realize it's 40 minutes here in it. Uh, can the mind be trained? And or, or maybe is it a routine? Is that common sense that we are missing out on? What how, how, how exactly can we get that right? Because yeah, smart people yeah. do stupid things. Oh, all the time. You can, can count me, count me in that group. Yeah. So, you know, here's the thing. We have very vivid memory for pain and pleasure. If you think about back when you look back at your life memories, the most intense and vivid memories will be will be for the intensely pleasurable or intensely painful things that have happened. Right. But we have very poor memory for the gremlins. So we have good memory for the initial stimulus, poor memory for the uh, the after effect or the opponent process mechanism. And because we have such a poor memory of the gremlins on both sides. Mm. So for example, uh, I don't think we talked about this, but just as when we press on the pleasure side, you know, the gremlins hop on the pain side. If we intentionally press on the pain side, those gremlins will hop on the pleasure side. And this can be a healthy way to get your dopamine indirectly. For right. example, exercise to get the runners high or ice cold water immersion, mm. or prayer or meditation, anything that's effortful, but not too painful, painful, but not too painful, like not cutting, right? That's bad. That's too much pain. So not self-harm, but what's called hormesis, just the right sized pain mm. to get those gremlins to hop on the pleasure side to get dopamine right. indirectly. That can be a healthy source of dopamine. But here's the thing. Every morning when I wake up, I forget, literally, I forget. I cannot capture in my mind how good I feel after exercising. I don't have any memory from, for it. All I can think of is I do not want to get out of bed and I do not want to exercise, yes. right? But after I exercise, I'm so glad I did it. My day is so much better, right? So we don't remember the gremlins. And likewise with intoxicants, even if we have huge problems with uh, with our drug of choice, right? We, we've gotten into trouble repeatedly with, with drugs or alcohol or pornography. All we can remember is how good it feels. Even after it stops feeling good, we just remember that initial stimulus. We don't remember the gremlins. Because of that, we have to build an infrastructure around ourselves to remind us of the gremlins, okay? So that's things like you and I talking about it, right? You and I having this dialogue serves as a kind of extended hippocampus to remind ourselves of this problem. This is how uh, things like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and other 12-step groups, people come together and they tell their stories and they remind themselves, oh, these are all the things that happen when I engage in using my drug. We can do things like what I call self-finding strategies, where we put barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice, like, or we do things that are positive that gear us toward doing the good behaviors, right? Um, so for example, I won't bring any technology in my bedroom that I create a geographic barrier between myself and my devices. So I'm less likely to go on them as I'm, you know, trying to cultivate sleep and rest, but I might put my running shoes right next to my bed so that when I get up in the morning, I see them there. It's like, okay, yeah, I remember last night I wanted to go running in the morning. I don't want to go now, I actually don't run. I don't run. I walk, but anyway, whatever. I don't want to go walking now, but yeah. there are my shoes. So at some point I did want to do that. Right? right. So those types of things. 
Yes. So it shouldn't matter how you feel. If you have a routine, you have to stick by it. I think you were on Joe Rogan podcast as well, which I quite enjoyed listening to you there. And in some other episode, Joe Rogan talks about this, that if I exercise only when I feel good, then I'm yeah. going to be a fat, miserable person. Right. It's So it's normal to feel miserable in the first few minutes of waking up in the morning yes. to go for that run. It's just oh, yeah. that mind uh, doesn't remember the pleasure after that workout right. or the run. And that's why it, it forces us to, you know, just shake us off from that uh, uh, place. Exactly, exactly. It's it, I always say it's actions before feelings. It's funny because in mental health today, we talk a lot about feelings and people tuning into their feelings and, you know, being authentic to their feelings and being mindful of their feelings. And that's instructive to a point, but sometimes our feelings are not our best guide, especially when it comes to dopamine. And what we have to do is do the good actions to get the good feelings, not wait till we feel like doing the good actions because that that will never come. That's interesting because I, I, I remember a podcast of Jerry Seinfeld, the great comedian, yeah. Uh, with, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, anyway, so the interviewer asks him that, are you always working? And he says, yes, I write jokes for a living and I'm working all the time. So even when I'm here talking to you, I'm looking for material. And he, <laughs> and, and he says that, you know, and, and uh, there's none, there's nothing. So he takes a jive at the interview. It was Howard Stern, I think. And then he asks, but isn't that a miserable way to live? And I mean, uh, he says, no, it's not. It's like going to the gym every day and yeah. you feel that, you know, ah, I got to do, I've got to do this again. Uh, and uh, he says that, hey, it's a tortured life. I said, yes, uh, but your blessing in life is when you find the torture that you're comfortable with is what That's right. Seinfeld responds. So the dopamine right. that he gets is probably by writing those jokes, but it's not easy. Right. It's, it's Well, that's right. That's right. And I think a key here is that um, we were really wired for pain. We really, we were evolved to experience enormous amounts of suffering and survive it. And my hypothesis about why we're so unhappy, so many of us are so unhappy today is because we're not really experiencing adequate amounts of pain to reset our reward pathways to the side of pleasure. We're suffering, but it's not because we have too much pain. It's because we have too little of the right kind of pain. And so by leaning into pain and pursuing, um, you know, a new form of asceticism where we intentionally seek out things that are hard, especially things that give us meaning and purpose mm. Mm. is really a much better life than a life where you're always just trying to make yourself comfortable. And, and how do you react to some strategies that are out there on the internet and uh, even, you know, psychologists have given it that you give yourself a reward at the end of doing that routine so that in the quest to get that reward, you'll get the routine done. Now, there's also the other school of thought that why don't you consider the routine itself a reward? So how does that work? Yeah. So to some degree, I think looking forward to a modest reward uh, at the end of a difficult activity can be a reasonable strategy. The problem is that the rewards today are so potent and we've done so much of bracketing our lives by looking forward to rewards that we've taken it way, way, way too far. And now, you know, our brains are just, it's like constantly, well, where's my next reward? Where's my next reward? That's the problem. What's a very interesting kind of thought experiment to do is go through your whole day 
where you don't do any of those little things that are your little rewards. So like, don't, you know, you don't have your cup of coffee in the morning, you eat breakfast, but you don't include that like thing that gives you that zing and you don't, you know, binge on Netflix at night and you, and just do that for one day. And it really changes how we move through the day. And what, what I've experienced is it does is it has us much more present in the moment because it's like right now you and I were talking and if I were thinking, okay, as soon as I'm done with this podcast, you know, I'm going to have myself a cupcake. Then the whole time I'm talking to you, I'm actually with part of my brain, I'm thinking about that cupcake. Whereas instead, if there's no reward at the end of our time together, then here we are. This is it. You and I, right? That's all we got. So I'm all in, right? Let's, let's make the most of it. And then you have a very different orientation on time, on what's happening to you right now. So I think it's really important for us just individually and collectively to reorient on rewards more broadly, because what's happened is all of us now, and we do it with our kids too, you know, all day long, it's like, here's an M&M, here's a cookie, here's your show. It's like, no, no, here, scrub some toilets, make your bed, uh, run around the block. And then your reward is like, you can sit here. And like calmly rest now, that's your, that's your reward. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's a funny thing, but I think we need to ratchet the whole thing back. Yes. When you said that, let's say you and I are talking right now, it's, it's about being in the moment for its own sake and nothing else then. Yeah. Yes. Except that a lot of times we talk about that, but people think that, oh, being in the moment is going to be so great if I knew how to do be in the moment. But what people have to realize is like, no, being in the moment is actually can be hard. Mm. You know, it's, I mean, and it's even harder if you're looking forward to a reward later, you, you almost can't do it. But if you don't have anything to look forward to, then all of a sudden the moment becomes quite nice, right? Or you, you, or that's you the only invest, thing you have. <laughs> that's all you have. So yes. you invest in it, you invest in it in a different way. Right. And then it, it is joyful because it is all you have. Mm. Now it makes me wonder, about the little gifts or uh, treats that we give our kids. I've got a four and a half year old and he's quite a mischievous lad. So the one way that we've tried to pin him down sometimes is by giving him a star on a piece of paper. Now it's, it's not anything that is physical, but uh, uh, even that is a reward then, right? Then that that's, that's possibly, it's just a figurative uh, star or a P something. All right. So the, the whole idea is that can everyone just do that activity like it is meant to be, and that that's about it. So, what what level of Buddha like uh, <laughs> we might have to be to get there? Then, or how difficult is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, I think a star for a kid is is like perfectly fine. You know, it's not a cookie, so you know, it's just it's sort of symbolic of, in a way, your approval and love, and so that that's fine. You know, that that's absolutely fine. I think what I'm saying is not so much that we should all suddenly be levitating like Buddha because we get this great insight. What I'm saying is that our pleasure seeking, our relentless reward and pleasure seeking, there's no end to it, right? And, And that pleasure and pain are relative and opposite. So the more that we ratchet up the rewards, the, the, the less pleasurable things will be for us so that the response is to avoid these highly reinforcing substances and behaviors, and instead intentionally do things that are hard, right? Right. So that we can reset our reward pathways so that more modest pleasures like a star 
uh, are actually pleasurable. Now, if you were letting your kid play video games, you know, as a reward for good behavior and eat uh, a chocolate cupcake and, you know, I don't know what else, whatever the million and one things that kid get it by a toy, then that star would mean absolutely nothing for that kid. He'd be like, where's my video game? Right. Like this star, get it out of here, right? Exactly. But clearly, if yeah. your kid is responding to a star, mm. you guys are doing it right because there's not there's not other more potent rewards. Right, right. And now that you say that, you know, I, I don't know how big a problem is it in the West. These days in India, parents now both uh, husband and wife work uh, we don't have joint family right. anymore, uh, which means that uh, there is a lot of pressure to get the kid to eat in the morning before he's out to school. Yeah. Many of us have gotten into a habit of, you know, putting the phone in front of uh, um, kids and uh, who are two, three, four years old. So much so that wow. some, someone I yeah. know said that there is no that the kid is not eating. Why? Because there's no internet. So how does that work? Because he can't see YouTube, so he won't eat. So how right. bad is it in the? I mean, how? How much? Yeah, that that's terrible. Changes. That's yeah, terrible. Yeah. yeah, because clearly, then now you're wiring this kid's brain to sort of link eating with watching this potent screen at a very young age when kids are when the brain is essentially pruning back the the neuronal synapses that are not being used, myelinating and making more efficient the synapses that are being used frequently, creating the neuronal in infrastructure that that child will be left with their entire adult life. So this is very bad. Um, and really shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be happening. I personally believe that a child under the age of 13 should not have access to their own device. And when they do engage with the screen, it should be intermittent and modest and monitored and all of that. I don't think that, but of course we have the same problem here. I mean, we have the, maybe not specifically around breakfast, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate and best babysitter, right? Put a kid in front of a screen and you don't have to talk to them for hours at a time but it's not good for their brains. Then you, you know, what's so interesting, you turn it off and the kids go crazy, right? They start screaming and kicking and yelling because they're in withdrawal, right? They're uh -huh. in direct withdrawal. So. Yeah. I, I have a friend, uh, he knew someone whose, whose kids spoke with a Samsung accent. So <laughs> he asked, what is Samsung accent? And then the, the joke was, and it's serious, but on a lighter note that the kid was brought up on a Samsung tablet watching yeah, oh uh, cartoons and yeah. nobody spoke with him in an American accent, but because oh, he watched Peppa Pigs of the world or whatever there is, right, uh, right. or no, Peppa Pig, I think is Brit. I don't know what happens in the brain, but at least his behavior was such that he wouldn't speak. But when he spoke, it would be uh, more like how a cartoon character would in that accent. So it oh, can weird. be weird. Yeah. 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 These are the, apoc these apocryphal stories. Uh, you know, there was a kid on an airplane who mm. the, the battery ran out on the iPad so the desperate parent pulled it away and had a book and gave it, gave the book to the kid. And the kid kept like pressing the book and trying to get the book to work. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe swipe a page. To... Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So you said 13, uh, uh, 13 years. Uh, that's a good one. I'm going to remember that, that yeah. you know, try and keep them away from uh, uh, technology as far as you can. Uh, yes, that's right. There are some who are mainly parents uh, who say that today we live in a world where uh, he or she will eventually hook up with phones. Why not introduce them early and so that they have that exposure? What are the pitfalls of introducing technology too early to kids? Well, yeah. So first of all, we hear this argument a lot. It's like, well, my kid needs to be, you know, part of the tech revolution. And if he doesn't have access to technology, he'll be behind, right? And that is so untrue. These kids 
you know, in Adelaide, even if they're for the first time they ever touched a smartphone was when they were 15, they would learn it in 24 hours and they would be better than the parents, you know, in a week. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's their brains are so plastic. They're so able to absorb information in an, in an nanosecond, they would master the technology. So you don't need all of those years building up to that. And in fact, what happens if you do expose your kids to lots of screen time growing up is essentially their brain gets wired around using screens as an adaptive coping mechanism. And again, it, it, it drives dopamine ultimately downward so that then now your kid is going to be, uh, you know, screaming and in withdrawal when you try to take it away. You're, you know, you're hooking your kid on a digital drug and, and that's no good. Now, again, this doesn't mean throw the baby out with the bathwater. Intermittent supervised use of watching movies or playing games or social media is all okay. But in those early years, especially that first decade, we really need to lay the groundwork for our kids learning how to communicate in real life with real people, how to do chores, how to do exercise, how to you know, organize themselves to do schoolwork, how to do things that are hard and difficult so that... In their teens, when we no longer have control over them and they go get their own phones and do whatever they're going to do, they at least have that foundation of knowing, you know, both a neurological foundation and a sort of psychological, psychocultural foundation of knowing what is kind of appropriate digital etiquette. That's interesting because uh, there was uh, long ago when the iPad was selling like hotcakes when it was introduced, mm -hmm. uh, there was this New York Times journalist who, in an interview with Steve Jobs, in the passing while hanging up said, hey, so your kids must be nerds in the house. They would be using, uh, uh, you know, mobile phone or this iPad. He said, no, they don't. He had moderated their use. And the interview goes on to talk about how he said he they get only on weekends or some such. And then there is one more book by Adam Alter, Irresistible, uh, something mm -hmm. around uh, uh, technology, where he said that these bosses of these tech giants were technophobes. Even the TikTok right. guy, I think he doesn't let his kid watch TikTok videos. So it's very real and present, the problem. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the people who made and engineered these highly addictive digital drugs won't let their own kids use them. So that that speaks volumes. Right. So, you know, this is they're they're putting it out there in the world, but they're not letting their own progeny uh, participate because they they know that that the, these this digital media was engineered to be addictive and they don't want their kids to to get addicted. And and talking of that uh, addiction, you know what is that line? And you would have been mm -hmm. asked this question quite often: is yeah. line between insane work ethic to pursue excellence versus uh, you know complete madness? Uh, of right. us. It's like, I think, again, Joe Rogan had said something interesting that insanity and greatness are next door neighbors and they borrow yeah. each other's sugar. So it's, right. it's because, you know, there's a thin line. So how is that? Because some people dedicate their lives to a cause. It, it could be sports and they won't yeah. stop. It's like they are addicted. They have to get up in the morning and keep at it. It's right from Muhammad Ali to Sachin Tendulkar in India. And, and we revere them right because we want to be yes. them we may not have the right. work ethic so we don't get right. anywhere half as right. fraction as close to them but we look up to them so what is that line and and where uh, how can we know that we should push the envelope but not so much that we lose our wits yeah it's a great question and it's not an easy one to answer but you know i think the best approximation for an answer is again addiction is a pathological state that is defined by harm to self and or others. So if we're engaging in any activity 
you know, such that we are harming ourselves or harming other people, even if we can't see that harm, but other people can see the harm, then we're in addiction land. And certainly people who, uh, you know, achieve great things or who, who have a passion or who, you know, work obsessively or apply themselves obsessively to a certain endeavor, you know, it's not addiction unless it's maladaptive. Now, the issue here is that, you know, our society rewards workaholism and it rewards materialism and wealth and fame. And really, I don't think those things are healthy, but because our society sees them as things that we should strive for, we don't typically call out workaholism, right? Or we don't call out uh, addict, you know, money addiction, right? We see, but I can tell you working with very famous, some very famous, very rich, very successful people, they're not happy. Oh. These are, these are not enviable lives, hmm. no matter how they might appear on, on the outside. And many of these people themselves feel like they're on a treadmill and, and are trying to get off and, and can't figure out how to do it. So, you know, the, the idea is really to find that, that balance. And it's also down to um, the society, which we are a part of, right? Where if we see somebody right. driving a very swanky car, it doesn't matter whether his personal life is, you know, has gone uh, completely astray, but uh, he's a successful man or a woman. Yeah. So I think in, in, in individuals can be sick, but a society can be sick too. Um, and when you're living in a sick society, it's that much harder to find, you know, your own health because you'd have to go against the grain. And I do think we are there. I think, you know, this sort of capitalist system, which in a way is very well suited to human striving in another way seeks to make all of us uh, compulsive over consumers, um, you know, in the sense that that is the end product of a successful capitalist system is that we would all at some point become addicted to something. On that count, I was listening to an interview of a journalist on a BBC. That journalist was captured or kidnapped by, I think, some some, some group in Syria. And he was, you know, let go after nine months. So the BBC interviewer in the end asked, so what are the plans? What do you plan to do next? He said he was going to Afghanistan now to cover oh. the war-torn uh, area there. Yeah. So And I was lying in bed feeling very bad about myself saying, hey, look at the ambition of the guy. And that he's either he's a junkie to cover that kind yeah. of news, you call it that, right. or it is pure yeah. passion towards that I was born to do that. Yeah. Now, right. here I, I'll go back to your definition. It is, is, isn't that a definition of causing ha harm to oneself and also to the family back home that he's putting himself yeah. in, in, in positions where you shouldn't perhaps or I, yeah. I, don't, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's no, I think one. you're, I think you're right. So if, if we were in a society that really valued families, mm. we would have very different definitions of success. Right. This, uh, I think Robert Kappa, wasn't he the, the guy who covered all those wars and even he was there on the D-Day, he was a photographer, the only civilian photographer at the Omaha beach. And he said, if your photographs are not good enough, you are not close enough in that there were no lens wow. at the time. So he had yeah. to be in the, in the midst. Right. And, and so that's, that's taking it to the other extreme, but then right. that's how you become geniuses or is that the price right. that you pay for obsessive, you know, love for your passion. Yeah. Is that then is, is perhaps death for, for all we know. So would you count that as addiction or your, uh, I mean, I don't, that? yeah, you know, I, it's hard. I, I it's mm. a great, it's a great point because, but, but I think, you know, if we overuse this sort of concept of addiction and we apply it to every situation, 
uh, then, then we sort of dilute it. Because, I mean, certainly there that could be seen as an act of bravery and heroism in to, remember, to be remembered for the ages, ages, right? So it's not that every extreme behavior, it, but it's really more, addiction is really more like getting caught in this loop where there's a real gap between what we perceive the behavior to be doing and what it's really doing. That that gap is really, you know, at the heart of addiction. Whereas you could argue that journal, I mean, he's like, he's risking something, he's passionate, he's driven. Yes, he's potentially going to harm himself by getting closer, but there's there's not like a there's not like a diluted gap between, you know, there might be a gap between the value of that at the risk of his life. And we could argue that that, that it's not worth it, right? But but maybe it is worth it. I don't know. You know, and then in which case it's an act of heroism, not uh, not a, an addictive process. Right. And somebody has got to do it and that people should know the truth. That that would be one line of reasoning. Yes, and, that's right. And, and to come out of that loop, uh, you write that uh, willpower, which is what people talk about, that, hey, you have to will yourself through it, may not mm-hmm. be the best way of getting around it. And you write that it's just like a muscle that is overused. Willpower right. can also get tired. Uh, how, yeah. so how do you mean that? Yeah. So, I mean, we wake up in the morning with more willpower than we're going to have through the course of the day, which is why so many people with addiction will wake up and say, I'm not going to use today. And by five o'clock they're using, because if we rely on willpower alone, especially in this dopamine saturated world that we live in, where we're constantly being triggered, we're not going to be successful, which is why we have to use self-binding to create these barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice to help extend our, our willpower and our ability to, you know, achieve our goals, which is, you know, in, in this case, our goal of abstaining or moderating use. Right. So if I don't want to eat junk food, I should not stock them in the house. So that's a very simple. Exactly. Way of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. And it. also one mind boggling thing that I read in your book and also one of your podcasts is that it's important not to lie. Even ah, yes. casually, mm-hmm. casual lying in your right. day-to-day things, you say that it, yeah. it, it, it it has a neurological connection as well. Can you explain that? Because that's- Yeah, the- so, so this yeah. is so interesting. So over the years, a consistent theme I've heard again and again from patients with very severe addictions who get into recovery from those addictions is that one of the things that they've learned is that they cannot lie. It's not just they can't lie about using their drug. They can't lie about anything. If they start little lies like, oh, sorry, I'm late. Traffic was bad. Instead of just, sorry, I'm late. You know, I wanted more time to read the paper type thing. Then that sends them tripping down a road of relapse and addiction. And it's so interesting how it works. Um, You know, we don't know for sure, but probably what it is, is that when we get up in the morning and we make a commitment to not lying, that's effort because the average adult tells one to two lies per day. These are usually little white lies to cover up our mistakes and selfishness. And to not lie takes effort. We have to actually pay attention to not lying. But by engaging in that effort, what we're probably doing is strengthening our prefrontal cortex, which is a part of our brain that's looped into this reward pathway that actually allows us to delay gratification and put the brakes on consumption. It's also true that when we're not lying, we end up having uh, the ability 
to tell true stories about where we've been and what we've done. And those truthful autobiographical narratives provide a way not just to organize past experience, but also a roadmap for the future. So we have access to the actual data of what we're doing, how we're spending their time, what other people have done. We're more aware, right? And again, in that awareness, able to have more access to good information to make good choices. Telling the truth also um, encourages deep intimacy and intimacy with other human beings is a healthy alternative source of dopamine, as long as it's a healthy kind of intimacy. And we know that when we tell people like the mistakes we've made and um, the ways in which, you know, we've lied, cheated or steal, Mm. stolen, we think people are going to go running like, ew, get away, yucky. But in fact, the opposite happens and people feel, you know, feel the kind of shared humanity right. and they come closer to us. You know, so if we, we've we done something wrong, we tell the truth, we apologize, that leads to a burst of healthy dopamine, which then uh. fosters intimacy. And then that true intimacy can help people abstain from addiction because often the addictive substance or behavior is a replacement for mm. deep, deep human connection. So and that's just those are just some of the reasons that it works. It also rewires the brain, is what you you yes, think. Yes. So it's 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 got yeah. a proper neurological reason for it. And I know we're running out of time. Just a, a last last couple of them. Your first advice to those who want to wean themselves off of a yeah. bad thing is to abstain. Uh, generally from with your patients, how many of them say, hey, that's impossible. You're asking me to stop smoking up or do cocaine because these are real hard. Right. Addictions. So how do you, you know, square with them that, hey, you need to do this because you can't be with them and you can't police them because they're on their own when they leave your office. Mm -hmm. So how do you get them in that 20 minutes to an hour conversation? How do you get them to come to see, see your side of things? The way that I try to invite them into a willingness to do that experiment is to really hook it into what they came to see me for. And many people come to see, you know, so they want help with something, right? They're not getting along with their parents. They're not exercising. They've gained weight. They're depressed. They're anxious. And what I propose to them is that, you know, if you abstain from this behavior that for this substance for four weeks, that thing that you want help with may get better without our having to do anything else at all. Because mm. by changing dopamine reward pathways, you will come out of that dopamine deficit. You'll feel better. You'll be less anxious, less depressed more present, more confident, your relationships will improve. So, so that's really the hook. And then I really, you know, explain to them the neuroscience, the pleasure pain balance. And by understanding what's going on in the brain, that helps people have a framework for mm-hmm. tuning into what they're feeling when they're feeling it. I think there was one of your patients in the book you write about, I think she was using some drugs and you asked her to consider her current behavior in light of her future self. So would you like to be doing this three years down the line is a question that we need to ask. So anything that casts a vote, I think it's in another book called Atomic Habits where that author says that, you know, if it casts a vote against your future identity, then don't do it against it. So, you know, it's, 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 it sounds very commonsensical, doesn't it? So does it, does it baffle you that uh, many people, including me with ice creams for that matter, are, are seemingly harmless as compared to alcoholism, we, we still make those mistakes that, that that we don't get common sense as it's not as common as one would like it to be then. You know, it doesn't really baffle me because I do think that it's actually a really hard time to be alive in ways that are paradoxical and non-obvious, which is to say that this world of overabundance 
is not the world that we were designed for. And it stresses us in these exceptional ways that cause a lot of suffering and also make us feel guilty because we feel like we shouldn't feel sad, right? Uh, we shouldn't be struggling. We have so much and yet we are. And so I think understanding why and how this is affecting our brains is, is super helpful. And then recognizing that we're really slaves to our environment mm. and that we can't expect our behaviors to change if we don't, ex- if we don't change our environment, our immediate environment. Right. And, and the last one, is because the name of the book is Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. So I'll put you on a spot because there is no playbook for, you know, living the most virtuous or conscientious, what is that word? Conscientious life. Yeah. Uh, what would your definition be of what, what is that balance that you tell yourself or your patients? Because your book is also very personal where you mm. have poured your heart out and talked about your own, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ad- addiction, because that's how you put it there. How best should we be aiming for it? And so that we'll be happy to be using yeah, right. not, not the feelings kind, but you know that, hey, okay, that, that is how it is. What's that balance? Well, I think in a way it starts with not aiming for happiness, recognizing that we're wired for suffering, mm. that life is very hard and that we can mitigate suffering by taking the pursuit of pleasure out of our primary goal orientation mm. and instead uh, just embracing pain and recognizing that life is difficult, um, you know, having empathy for ourselves, uh, for other people, and then doing our best to find meaning and purpose um, in things that are hard, which is really, uh, you know, the true state of our lived experience. Um, Excellent. It reminds me of uh, Jordan Peterson, the clinical psychologist from uh, Canada, who says that we have to bear the responsibility of the highest order that you can, you know, you, you can shoulder perhaps. And that's yeah. where you find your, uh, uh, you know, joy if there is. Yeah, that's like right. That. Yeah. Right. Right. And that you can be in a place where when a rainbow appears, you're, you can appreciate it. Right. So you right. can't make the rainbow appear, but you can, you can adjust your life so that when a rainbow comes, you notice it. Yes, and, and, and that you just don't sit down and wait for the rainbow to appear, not doing That's anything. Right. Thank you That's very right. much, Dr. Lemke, for your oh, time. This has been yeah. wonderful. Uh, and I really oh. enjoyed talking with you. Me too. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been very kind. You have a great day, Dr. Lemke. You said, too. Said, Good. Uh, and keep up the great work with your little guy. It sounds like you're a wonderful parent. Oh, yeah. thank you. That's very kind of you. 